Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 as we continue on our study of Luke's Gospel. I'm actually going to start in verse 43, back up a few verses from what I have printed in the bulletin. And before I read, I want to remind you of what has gone before that we have looked at over the past few weeks. Luke contrasts here the greatness of Christ with the lack of greatness that the disciples uh, exhibit in in these few verses that we're about to read. If you'll just look back a couple of verses, paragraph or two up in 928 and following, Luke describes for us the revelation of Christ's glory on the mountaintop to Peter, James, and John. Jesus is praying and he's transfigured. His face is altered and his clothing becomes dazzling white. Moses and Elijah appear there. They're talking to Jesus. And then the glory cloud of the Lord surrounds them and a voice comes out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. So it's a glorious scene on the mountaintop. And then the next day, Jesus and Peter, James, and John come down the mountain, and uh, it's less than glorious, to say the least. As they come down from the mountain, they are greeted with a large crowd in chaos because the disciples who are left behind cannot cast a demon out of a boy. They were trying to do it without prayer. If you look at the parallel accounts in in, uh, Matthew and Mark, uh, that Jesus says that directly. Uh, They were putting their faith in themselves instead of in the Lord. Jesus heals the boy. So let's pick up the reading at verse 43 after this healing where it says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may... They might, they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great." John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us today. Well, you hear people maybe talk about the patience of Job, but I think we could probably note the patience of Jesus here with his disciples and, and there's an odd comfort you can get from reading this account of the disciples because you realize that they were uh, just as dumb as we are. 
in a lot of ways. They fall short in so many ways, uh, especially at this point in their career. Uh, and it's a great uh, comfort to know that there's a transformation coming in, in Acts chapter 2. These people who, uh, who are so self-involved and self-centered uh, become great uh, preachers and servants of the Lord and of his kingdom and are used to do mighty things as the church is established, as the Holy Spirit comes upon him. But I want to look first at these disciples, and then I want to look at Jesus, because I believe Luke is putting the greatness of Jesus next to the, the lack of greatness of the disciples, and it's highlighting Jesus for us, and that's what we want to look at most of all today. But first we'll look at the disciples, and you see here that they're so self-sufficient to begin with, that they don't go to the, the Lord in prayer to cast out the demon in the boy. So they're self-sufficient. They can do it themselves. They've been on missions and they've been able to cast out demons and it became formulaic and they knew that they felt like they could do it on their own. They didn't need the Lord. Then they're so self-centered that they argue amongst themselves about which one is the greatest. I mean, that's kind of a cringe-worthy account there, just sitting around arguing you know, I'm greater than you. Can you imagine sitting around having an argument about with your friends about which one of you is the greatest? I mean, it's, uh, it's appalling, really. So they're very self-centered there. And then they're so self-important, they want to exclude others, this one person in particular, who was helping people, casting out demons, obviously a disciple of Christ, but not part of their group, uh, wanted to put a stop to his good work, even though uh, he was doing good, just because he wasn't part of their, them, the disciples. So they're self-important. Then they're so self-righteous, they want to wipe a village off the map just because the village did not extend hospitality to Christ. Now all of this self-importance, self-centeredness, self-reliance, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. It comes after Jesus has said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see that in chapter 9, verse 23. The disciples are obviously not into self-denial yet. But before they met Jesus, none of them were anything special Fishermen, tax collectors, a bunch of average Joes. And Jesus is using them. He's, he's made something out of them. And he's spreading the word through them and helping people through them. But now they're acting like it's all about them. And, and it, they're all uh, something important now. Well, they're merely reflecting our fallen human nature with which we are all infected. You know, our self-sufficiency comes out in a life of prayerlessness, a lack of dependence on the Lord. How often do we have a problem in our lives and our first, our first response to the problem is to try to figure out what we can do about it instead of going to the Lord in prayer about it. And, and who doesn't want to be the center of attention and to be considered great? I just look at Facebook or any social media where people are just so self-involved. On there, nobody shares anything bad there. 
Or if they do share something bad, it's just so that they can get attention for themselves. And now, more than ever, we have this us-versus-them mentality in our, in our culture today, in our society today. And we want to destroy our opponents. I mean, you can just see that in the news, right? So the disciples are human beings like we are, full of self-centeredness, self-importance, self-righteousness. But look at what Jesus says in reference to the disciples' argument about who was the greatest. Verse 46, they're arguing about the great, you know, who's the greatest. And Jesus provides them an object lesson. He brings a little child, put him by his side, and he says, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Though loved and cherished, children in the Hebrew culture, was the smallest and most powerless individuals, obviously. And if you look at uh, what the Talmud has to say about it, which was the teaching of the, uh, the law expounded uh, by the Pharisees and others, they regarded spending time with children as a waste of time. One rabbi wrote, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of the common people assembly, assemble, destroy a man. So even talking to children was looked down upon. It didn't add anything to a man, it was said. And then later in Luke 18, we see the disciples consider Jesus too important to receive children. They are trying to shoo children away from Jesus. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me, right? And that's they were just reflecting their cultural uh, attitudes of the day. Uh, that is that the greatness that you want to exhibit is directly connected to who you welcome, who you hang out with, your associates. You wanted to be hanging out with greatness. You wanted to be able to receive greatness. That's who you welcomed into your life, not children. They aren't anything great. And I'm sure part of the argument that was going on about who was the greatest was the fact that Peter, James, and John had been up on the mountain with Jesus and they saw the glory of the Lord. And, you know, by association, they felt like, hey, I'm great because I'm one of those people that saw the glory of the Lord. We're better than you are. So they were full of themselves. So Jesus is seeking to break through the disciples' selfish ambitions and he presented them with two opposite figures. Himself, who was everything to them. He was great, certainly. They knew that. And then this child, who was nothing to them. And Jesus says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Now Jesus is not saying that being nice to children is, is, uh, was, would indicate how you were related to God uh, or related to him. No, he was just saying that, as he says at the end, Associating with the lowly, not thinking so highly of yourselves. That's what really is great. That demonstrates that they have actually received Christ, that they love the lowly. All who welcome Jesus welcome God the Father also. Greatness is not merely the possession of those who associate with the great. Rather, it is a gift of God to those who receive and serve the lowly. And Jesus says it. 
Whoever is least among you all, he is the greatest. Not only did Jesus say that, but Jesus lived that. And that's what I want us to look at now. Look at what Jesus actually did. Here's someone in the person of Jesus who is, unlike the disciples, not your average Joe. That's an understatement. I mean, he is God's glorious, all-powerful son, the chosen one, as the voice from the cloud said on the mountain. That's who Jesus is. Now, Chuck Colson, many of you are familiar with Chuck Colson. He was uh, special counsel to President Richard Nixon from 1969 to 70, and he was once known as President Nixon's hatchet man, and he gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal for being named as one of the Watergate Seven, and he pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice, for which he served seven months in federal prison, and he was the first member of the Nixon administration to be incarcerated for Watergate-related charges. Now, in the middle of all that Watergate scandal that was going on, he became a Christian and eventually founded Prison Fellowship and he wrote more than 30 bit books and had an impressive ministry until his death up to in about 2012, I believe. But he writes this. I vividly recall a glimpse from my White House days. One brisk December night as I accompanied the president from the Oval Office in the West Wing of the White House to the residence, Mr. Nixon was musing about what people wanted in their leaders. He slowed a moment, looking into the distance across the South Lawn, and said, The people really want a leader a little bigger than themselves, don't they, Chuck? I agreed. I mean, someone like de Gaulle, he continued. There's a certain aloofness, a power that's, that's exuded by great men that people feel and want to follow. And then Colson goes on to say, Jesus Christ exhibited none of this self-conscious aloofness. He served others first. He spoke to those to whom no one spoke. He dined with the lowest members of society. He touched the untouchables. He had no throne, no crown, no bevy of servants or armored guards. A borrowed manger and a borrowed tomb framed his earthly life. Kings and presidents and prime ministers surround themselves with minions who rush ahead, swing the doors wide, and stand at attention as they wait for the great to pass. Jesus said that he himself stands at the door and knocks, patiently waiting to enter our lives. So Jesus was not one of those leaders who was like de Gaulle, aloof. He got down with the lowest people in society and brought love to them. Look at his determination to complete the mission of loving service he has been given. Verse 51, it repeats it, repeats it there. Uh, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And a couple of verses later it's reiterated. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's determined to go to Jerusalem. It's a euphemism for that. And he knows what awaits him there. Look at verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears, he tells the disciples. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's going to happen in Jerusalem where Jesus is determined to go. 
to go to lay down his life for sinners, to serve sinners. Jonathan Edwards writes about Jesus. His whole life was filled up with suffering. He began to suffer in his infancy, but his suffering increased the more he drew near to the close of his life. His suffering after his public ministry began was probably much greater than before. In the latter part of the time of his public ministry, seems to have been distinguished by suffering. The longer Christ lived in the world, the more men saw and heard of him, the more they hated him, so that the cloud over Christ's head grew darker and darker as long as he lived in the world till it was in its greatest blackness when he hung on the cross and cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was perfectly innocent and deserved no suffering. He deserved nothing from God by any guilt of his own, and he deserved no ill from men. Yes, he was not only harmless and undeserving of suffering, but he was infinitely worthy, worthy of the infinite love of the Father, worthy of infinite and eternal happiness, and infinitely worthy of all possible esteem, love, and service from all men. And yet, he was perfectly patient under the greatest sufferings that ever were endured in this world. Hebrews 12, 2, it says, He endured the cross, despising the shame. He suffered not from his father for his faults, but ours. And he suffered from men not for his fault, but for those things on account of which he was infinitely worthy of their love and honor, which made his patience the more wonderful and the more glorious. Christ went to Jerusalem And he went right into greater suffering, to the ultimate suffering, where he bore the wrath of God for our sin on the cross. And that's what he knew was going to happen. John 10 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He was very aware of his mission. He was very aware of how he came to serve lowly sinners such as you and I. Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he said the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was great in and of himself. He's the glorious son of God, but what makes him even greater is that he humbled himself and served. He loved us in spite of our unworthiness. Jesus Christ receives sinners. He receives the lowliest sinners. Will you humble yourself and receive him? That's what we're talking about. He who receives the little child, he who is willing to receive the little child will receive me. Will you humble yourself and receive him and his forgiveness? Will you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him in a life of humble service to him and others, even the lowliest of society? That's what Jesus did for us, and may we bear the marks, the resemblance of, of him in our lives. May we look more like Christ. May the Lord pray.
impress upon us what he's done for us and how that should not make us aloof, should not make us proud or self-important or self-righteous or self-centered. It should make us Christ-centered, depending on his righteousness, not our own. Being others-focused, Christ-focused, that's the call that Christ places upon all of us. And he will receive sinners. But we have to recognize that we are sinners. We have to humble ourselves and come to him for cleansing and forgiveness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you have supplied the words of life for us. Lord, we pray today that you would increase our faith, help us to trust you, to not trust in ourselves, to not be self-sufficient or self-righteous. But Lord, we pray that we would place our lives solely upon Christ, upon his perfect life, upon his sacrificial death, upon his rising from the dead to conquer the greatest enemy, death. And Lord, we pray that we would take up our cross daily, denying ourselves and follow Jesus. Help us to bear the family resemblance. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your family. And Lord, we pray in these moments together as we worship you and as we come to your table that we would not only by faith be united to you, but that we would enjoy communion with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.